0: NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Look up in the clear night sky sometime and try to grapple with the millions of stars and the billions of miles of vast open universe and you can get a sense of what makes Neil Tyson tick.
1: There's some deep feeling we all have to try to understand our place in the universe and this is a feeling that has expressed itself not only across time but through culture, through the history of human culture.
0: Tyson runs the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, where he hopes to engender in the general public a sense of why we reach for the stars.
1: The biologist sees the fundamental molecule, the human of life, and they call it deoxyribonucleic acid. We look up and we say, the Silver River (laughs) for the Milky Way. You know, it's, it's a different emotion.
0: The story of a young man's search for a sense of the cosmos this week on Living on Earth.
2: Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Looking up is something Neil deGrasse Tyson just loves to do. He takes great pleasure in watching the cosmic real estate, as he calls it, Stars, nebulae, planets, comets, galaxies, these celestial bodies tease him with their beauty and mysteries, mysteries that he's working to solve as an astrophysicist and director of New York's Hayden Planetarium. As one of a very few African-American astrophysicists, Neil Tyson also finds joy in being a role model as he shares his enthusiasm about the nature of the universe. You may have seen him in the recent specials by Nova on PBS called Origins, or perhaps you've picked up his autobiography, *The Sky Is Not the Limit: Adventures of an Urban Astrophysicist*. Neil Tyson joins me now in our studio. Now, uh, Neil, you knew from early on in your childhood that you wanted to be an astrophysicist, and in fact, you had a defining moment. Uh, what? You're nine years old. You go into the Hayden Planetarium, and of course, you're director there now, all these years later. But what happened to you on that day?
1: <laughs> that yeah it was a defining moment on that day. I was struck by the night sky, as I had never before seen it. Having grown up in the Bronx, New York, of course, one of New York City's five boroughs, I thought I had known what the night sky looked like. It had a dozen stars in it. You know, you can see the moon and the sun. And that was my inventory of the cosmos. It was not until a a trip to the Hayden Planetarium at age nine, and the lights dimmed and the stars came out, And I thought that was kind of entertaining, you know, the nice hoax. You know, I didn't think it was real because I knew the night sky. I had seen it from the Bronx, and there were 14 stars. So I was certain it was a hoax until I'd left the city with the family on a family trip and into Pennsylvania, actually, and I looked up, and there was the night sky. From then to this day, it's an embarrassing thought, but it's true nonetheless, that when I look up at the night sky from the world's finest observing sites. I say to myself, it reminds me of the Hayden Planetarium.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But actually, then the the moment, the aha moment, was when you were outside and could really see the sky.
1: Right. So that sort of imprinted me, that first experience in New York City's uh, Hayden Planetarium. And then it took a couple of years to become something within me. And by age 11, a friend of mine had lent me a pair of binoculars, and I used them to look up at the moon in in the twilight sky. And the moon wasn't just bigger, it was better. It had mountains and craters and valleys and hills. And at that moment, I felt that I was communing through time with Galileo, who first turned his telescope to the sky and saw all those very same things. Of course, a bajillion people have seen it before I did, but that didn't matter. It was my first time. And I I was hooked ever since. It was like a calling.
0: Now, why do you suppose that of all the kids from your school class that went to the Hayden Planetarium that day that... uh, you're the one that wound up as an astrophysicist and, in fact,
1: running the planetarium. Yeah, I don't... That's an interesting question. Uh, Maybe, you know, the shape of my receptors, my neurological receptors was different. But I can tell you this, that every single person I grew up with remembers their first trip to the Hayden Planetarium. And it's... I don't think that's even unique for the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Any school trip to a planetarium, you remember that first time your whole life. So it's not as though... I, that day mattered to me and didn't matter to others. It mattered to everyone. But somehow I was, I was starstruck.
0: Okay. So now you're your kid in the Bronx. What do the neighbors think of a kid who's up on the roof? That's where you went to look, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, with binoculars.
1: Right? Well, the binoculars are not so obvious from afar. But over the years, when I, I saved money from uh, walking dogs, actually, in this apartment complex, which there were many dogs, that's sort of the urban counterpart to the paper route is mm-hmm. you walk people's dogs, 50 cents a walk. Uh, I bought my first telescope, and I'd haul the telescope to the roof. That People would see that and think that I had a bazooka or something. I and mean, police would come all the time wondering <laughs> okay. what I was doing.
0: <laughs> so what do you say to the cops? Because <laughs> here's an African-American guy <laughs> up on the roof with something that looks like it could be a weapon. and
1: Yeah, it, uh, plus I had a cord going down to a neighbor to get power to run the clock drive on the telescope. So there's a wire going down the side of the building. So this probably looked odd to the police for anyone to be up there. But this is, of course, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, black Americans were not typically thought of as either academic, by, you know, by the establishment. Certainly not by the police department. And there I am looking at the universe. So, the planet Saturn bailed me out every time. <laughs> Saturn bailed you out? Yeah. You just show somebody Saturn through a telescope; they become a puppy, and you know they they reholster their gun and they say, "Wow, that's cool. Let me. Sh- I want to show my kids." So, what is it about the solar system that, that fascinates you? Well, it's not only the solar system; it's the galaxy and the entire universe. I don't think I'm unique in my fascination with the cosmos. I don't twist the arm of editors to have them put make cover stories of cosmic discoveries. You look at Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, the major uh, newspapers have science sections and an image comes down from Hubble Telescope, they put it right on the cover. I don't twist their arm to do that. They know intuitively, if not intellectually, that there's some deep feeling we all have to try to understand our place in the universe. And this is a feeling that has expressed itself not only across time, but through culture, through the history of human culture. You've got people wondering what our place is in the universe. For the first time, we can now address those questions using the methods and tools of science, which makes today more exciting in that regard than at any previous time.
0: Okay. I'm going to take you, the scientist, away from science a little bit to plain old-fashioned emotion. This is the media, right?
2: Sure. Okay. But we tell
0: the facts, but it's got to come with feelings, all right? All right. All right. Okay. So I want to do a game of association with you.
1: Okay. That's possible? For it. Uh-huh. So tell no, me. No, just so you know, I, I, I'm generally not strongly driven by emotional thoughts. So, I don't know how this game will go.
0: <laughs> I guess we're about to find <laughs> we'll
1: out. We'll find out. Okay. Here's,
0: here's, here's the game. Mm-hmm. What word or phrase comes to mind when I mention the following? And we'll start with an easy one. Now, as I understand it, your favorite planet is Saturn.
1: Saturn. Splendor. Splendor. Yes. It's by far the, be- the most beautiful planet of them all. Really? Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Saturn. You can't argue with Saturn with the rings and the. Uh, come on now. Other planets have rings, but nothing like Saturn's rings. <laughs> Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter. Um, all I can think of is the comet that slammed into Jupiter back in 1994. A comet slammed into Jupiter. That sight is, was unforgettable to me. That's, that's an image I have. It's a, a, a comet that had been minding its own business, whose orbit got altered for having come a little too close on one of its flybys. And then Jupiter captured it and put it on a collision course. And the comet broke into two dozen pieces, and each piece carried the energy of the asteroid that took out the dinosaurs here on Earth 65 million years ago, and 24 of them plunged into Jupiter's atmosphere.
0: Um, Diversion from the game for a moment. What would have happened if that comet had hit the Earth?
1: Uh, There'd be no people left on Earth. Just as 65 million years ago, there were no dinosaurs left after we had uh, such an impact. But this impact was vastly more devastating would have been vastly more devastating than even that impact. So, uh, i keep keeping a uh, part of my attention and I keep an eye on the vagabonds of the solar system because one of them will surely show up with our name on it. I want to come back to that in a little bit, but let's go ahead with the so, game now. So that means I don't I don't feel emotions for Jupiter. I just feel the facts about it. I'm sorry. I'm not the game isn't working. <laughs> we could try a few more. So far it's kind of interesting. Okay. To me
0: anyway. Okay, we're we're, we're still in the free association the Milky Way.
1: Milky Way. Uh, I think of the different cultures and the names they have for it, and my first thought is what they call the Milky Way in China. I practice this, I think it's yin-he, which translates into English as the Silver River. And every time I see the names various cultures give the Milky Way, they're all majestic, they're all poetic, they're all beautiful, and that's a testament to the emotions we all feel when we look up and try to name things. We don't look up and name it 20-syllable words or 10... like. The biologist sees the fundamental molecule, the human of life, and they call it deoxyribonucleic acid. We look up and we say, the silver river (laughs) for the Milky Way. You know, it's it's a different emotion.
0: The Big Bang Theory.
1: Big Bang. Once again, in astrophysics, we we stick to the one-syllable descriptors of things, even important things. Big Bang, you know, I see that as the triumph of 20th century astrophysics. To actually recognize and measure and demonstrate the fact that the universe had a beginning a beginning it wasn't even thought so I was you know why even have that as a thought and it's traceable back to Hubble Hubble the man not Hubble the telescope Hubble the man after whom the telescope was named of course he discovered the universe was expanding in the 1920s and you do, you run through the math and look at the observations yesterday the universe was smaller than it was today. Go back a few more days, it was even smaller. Keep going back, there's a point where all the universe began as one little nugget uh, 14 billion years ago. I think that's one of the most amazing stories that has emerged from modern science. And not enough people have come to feel that and appreciate what a triumph that is. No longer having to resort to the mythologies of cultures past because we have the methods and tools of science to address these problems.
0: But of course, science always raises a question when it answers one. And the obvious one is, well, what was before the Big Bang? But we have
1: no idea. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's part of the fun of science. Some people are uncomfortable with ignorance. Good scientists have to, in fact, relish in it. Um, there's, in fact, there's a part of a poem by um, Rainier M- Maria Wil- Rilke. The poem ends, you must learn to love the questions themselves. And uh, so, yeah, right now, the next frontier is what was around before the Big Bang. We, we have some ideas, but nothing grounded in observation or or experiment.
0: Okay. Last question in our game here. Uh, what word or phrase comes to mind when I mention Pluto?
1: Pluto. Overrated as a planet. <laughs> Overrated <laughs> as a planet. Overrated. Overrated. I mean... It was discovered by an American, so Americans got all happy about it and coincidentally got named, has the same name as a Disney character, which was first sketched coincidentally the same year that Pluto, the cosmic object, was discovered, 1930. Um, So with Pluto, you know, we think of it as a planet, but most people who think that don't also know that there are six moons in the solar system bigger than Pluto, including Earth's moon. And so we don't start calling our moon a planet. Well, why not? We ought to, if size matters. Well, if size doesn't matter, let's look at composition. Well, Pluto is, more than half of its volume is made of ice. If Pluto were where Earth is right now, it would grow a tail from the heat of the sun evaporating the ice. Now, what kind of behavior is that for a planet? We have a word for things that have tails in the solar system. We call them comets. In fact, we just recently discovered other objects in the outer solar system that look more like Pluto Pluto and they look more alike than either of them look like any other planet in the solar system. So we think Pluto has found its family, its family of comets in the outer solar system. I still love it to death, but I don't, uh, you know, got take it taken in context.
0: My guest is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York, and his book is called The Sky is Not the Limit, Adventures of an Urban Astrophysicist. And we'll resume our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City and author of The Sky is Not the Limit, Adventures of an Urban Astrophysicist. Neil, uh, in your book, which I guess is a memoir of sorts, you write about having an existential crisis with your academic major, uh, astrophysics. So uh, I'm wondering if you could read for us from a section here about that time in your life, uh, I think it's on page
1: 135. I'd be happy to. During the spring of my sophomore year at Harvard, I was well into the course of work for my declared major, taking on an unhealthy dose of physics and math classes, as well as the requisite other non-science courses that a full schedule requires. That year, I was also on the university's wrestling team, a second string to a more talented senior in my 190 pound weight category. One day after practice, we were walking out of the athletic facility. When he asked me what I had been up to lately, I replied, My problem sets are taking nearly all my time, and I barely have time to sleep or go to the bathroom. Then he asked me what my academic major was. When I told him physics, with a special interest in astrophysics, he paused for a moment, waved his hand in front of my chest, and declared, Blacks in America do not have the luxury of your intellectual talents being spent on astrophysics. No wrestling move he had ever put on me was as devastating as those accusatory words. Never before had anyone so casually, yet so succinctly, indicted my life's ambitions. My wrestling buddy was an economics major, and, a month earlier, had been awarded the Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford, where, upon graduation, he planned to study innovative economic solutions to assist impoverished urban communities. I knew in my mind that I was doing the right thing with my life, whatever the right thing meant, but I knew in my heart that he was right. And until I could resolve this inner conflict, I would forever carry a level of suppressed guilt for pursuing my esoteric interests in the universe. Now, what was the ethnic background of this, of this gentleman? He was black, American black, straight American black, out of a city, you know, yeah. big city. Yeah, And so I couldn't just cite that he didn't understand my situation. If he were white, I could say he just doesn't know. But we had such common profiles right on through the being the college athletes. And his comment was so simple and so real that I, I was just devastated. I, I was devastated. And it took me 10 years to dig out of that hole that he put me in. So how did you resolve this? How how, how did you... Well, I didn't. I mean, yes, I, I went on to graduate school. Yeah. I, but again, I was carrying this guilt, wondering whether I could ever fully and deeply justify my interests. And uh, let me comment that that my graduating class that was at Harvard, 132 black graduates, only two went on for advanced academic degrees, myself included. The rest went on to uh, professional degrees, law school, medical school, went into business, that sort of thing. So if you want to ask, you know, who's doing good, If you go on to a professional degree, you make much more money, you become economically upwardly mobile much sooner, and there I was, you know, trying to get a PhD for the next six, seven years of my life, earning basically, practically minimum wage doing it. So uh, it took 10 years, and it was not until I was in graduate school at Columbia University. There was an explosion on the sun, and Fox News (laughs) called our department. And they would usually send public inquiry to me because they knew I had some appreciation for public curiosity. And I spoke with the weather guy because they they always do all the science things with the weather guy. And the weather guy said, "There's this explosion on the sun. Should we be worried?" And I said, "Oh, not to worry. This is a blob of plasma. You know, the sun burps these up every now and then, and occasionally one heads towards Earth. And it's charged particles. They'll see Earth's magnetic field. They'll spiral down and collide with our atmosphere, render it a glow. You'll have a." Beautiful display of the northern lights this weekend use it as an occasion to go north And he said well, that's great. Can we can we get you on the air saying that I said fine So they sent up the limo and I, I you know, ran home put on my one tie and my one jacket shaved and We did the interview in the studio Pre-taped I went home call, called everybody of course, you know grandma mom dad sis. there it was on TV I'm watching myself. I'm eating dinner. I'm watching myself kind of like an out-of-body experience. I said, was that me? No, I'm me. So who could that be? Well, that was me, but I'm... You know, (laughs) the first time you're on TV watching it, you you get through this, your brain has to figure that one out. But anyhow, I realized at that moment, this was 1989, I had never before seen a black person interviewed on television for expertise that had nothing whatever to do with being black. You think about it, you've seen blacks, sure, they're entertainers and and, and actors and that sort of thing, and, and athletes. But when you look at people brought onto television as experts, watching myself, that was the first time I'd ever seen it. The interviewer didn't ask me, well, how do black people feel about this explosion on the sun? Does the melanin in the skin make any... It was not about being black. It was about my expertise. And I realized this is one of the last challenges of race relations is is shaking this stereotype that the black community can't do anything intellectually challenging. And I realized that if I or anyone else like me were visible doing just that, that that could have a greater force in the future of race relations than any enterprise zone that gets set up in the inner city. And at that point, I realized I... This is what I've got to keep doing. I can't turn down these opportunities. Still need to be the scientist. But I stand the possibility of becoming vastly more influential than my accuser ever would have been. And I don't even know what he's doing now. I don't I looked him up on there. I couldn't find him. I don't know what he's doing. He's probably making money. <laughs> probably making money. <laughs> well, it, That's my long story, but it's, it, was, it was transformative for me. In your book, you say you want to
0: bring the universe down to earth. And, uh, and you lament that Hollywood, even the news, distorts science. How best do we achieve scientific literacy uh, in our society?
1: There are a couple of ways. I You know, if I had a nickel for every parent who walked up to me and said, how do I get little Johnny or or, or Jane interested in science? And one of my, I give them an answer they don't actually like. I say, Get out of their way. <laughs> if you've ever been around a kid, you know, a four-year-old, a three-year-old, a six-year-old, they're into everything. They're experimenting. They're hit, They're playing music with the pots and pans, and they're pouring milk on the table and throwing things. And what's the first thing a parent says? Stop doing that. Sit down. Be quiet. Stop making the noise. Clean that up. And, you know, when my daughter, you know, she was two, she poured milk on the table and watched it drip through the eaves of the, the table separators and then looked under the table and watched it drip down on the ground, uh, she was doing experiments in fluid dynamics as far as I, as I saw. And I let that continue and of course I cleaned up after her. Um, but I think you kids are natural, they're born curious about the world around them. So in that sense they're born scientists. You just get out of their way. And make sure you take them to museums where they can express this curiosity and possibly mess up somebody else's place instead of yours. <laughs> <laughs> what did your wife say about this uh... I cleaned up, there was not a problem. Yeah. I made sure to clean up. Yeah. yeah. Now,
0: what should the role of planetariums be in communities?
1: I think, you know, there's there's no there's no counterpart to planetariums in any of the other sciences. There're no sort of here's a physics particle accelerator for you to visit this weekend, Johnny, you know, or <laughs> there's the closest you get to this is, you know, dinosaur bones on display. You can bring the universe to the public. The universe is photogenic. Like I said, the Hubble brings back the next picture. It's cover story on all the news weeklies. So we have the advantage that not only is the universe photogenic, our vocabulary to describe it is transparent. We don't use big words. We use simple words that actually have some descriptive value. Spots on the sun, sunspots. (laughs) Big red stars, red giants. Regions of space where light doesn't come out and you fall and you never got a black hole. Okay, these are our formal terms for very real astrophysical things. I'd like to believe that the scientific literacy of the public can be pumped, can be enhanced, can be enriched by using the universe as a hook to get people interested in science at all. If you've got people that are indifferent to science, I don't believe they can retain that indifference with the slightest encounter with how beautiful the universe is. You just show them that, and they'll say, I, I want to learn more. they say, well, look at the chemistry of the, inner, of the space. We're, now we're looking for life on other planets. You can become an astrochemist, an astrobiologist, a biogeologist, because there's life thriving deep within the fissures of Earth's crust. The biologist is no longer separated from the geologist. They must live together in the same room. So there's so many frontiers of science represented in the study of the universe that I think if that can't hook you, nothing will. And that's what we've got to promote. And that's the role of planetariums going forward, I think. One of the uh, most provocative parts of your book
0: involves your calculations of the odds of getting killed by an asteroid, you know, a <laughs> rogue asteroid striking the Earth, an asteroid of the dimensions, I guess, of maybe not as big as the one that uh, recently hit Jupiter, but by a pretty big one. It, you say it's about the same as getting killed in an airplane crash and that, that you think the United States ought to be spending money to track uh, these uh, these objects out there, and, uh, and to be in a position that you know to prevent something like that from happening. So, tell me, how likely is it that a meteor, a deadly meteor, uh, could hit the Earth uh, in our lifetimes or our, or our children's lifetimes? And and how do you talk about that without sounding alarmist? I mean, there are these scary Hollywood movies made about this, and 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 then finally, just to pile the questions on. What could in fact be done if something like that were were aimed at the Earth?
1: These are important and real questions. In fact, I was co-signer of a letter, an open letter sent to Congress and the administration, appealing, even in the mid of all midst of all the problems that we now face in the world, appealing to Congress to consider the importance of devoting some resources, national or international resources, to tracking and monitoring the trajectories of asteroids and comets uh, that we already know cross Earth's orbit. They just happen to cross our orbit when we're not there at the moment. But if they cross our orbit at all, one day in the future they might cross the orbit at the same time we're in that spot and then hit us. So um, getting back to the likelihood of that, a very important statistic that is not widely appreciated. Yes, your odds of getting, of your tombstone, saying killed by an asteroid, are about the same as the one that would say killed in a plane crash. The reason why those are the same is because an asteroid, as rare as it would be, is of tremendously high consequence. An asteroid the size that uh, took out the dinosaurs hits again, or even less, it's a smaller one than that. It could kill a billion people. Whereas an airplane crash, and annually a couple of hundred people die in airplane crashes, how long would it take airplane crashes to accumulate to kill a billion people? It might take, you know, 10 million years, 50 million years. Well, once every 50 million years, an asteroid kills a billion people. So when you look over a long enough base of time, the number of people dead from an asteroid would be the same as the number of people dead from an airplane, and that's why those statistics match the point of citing them that way is to sensitize the public to the need to do something i'm not talking about directing billions of dollars to it because it might not happen for another million years but you don't want to be stuck i don't want to be the laughingstock of the universe of being a species on earth that has the intelligence and the technology to do something about it and end up going extinct for having sat on our hands and done nothing that would just be embarrassing, I think. Okay. So, so what do you do? If you see one coming our way, if you want to be macho about it, you detonate it and blow it into smithereens. But that's not the wisest solution. What you want to do is nudge it out of harm's way. It's still out there, but it takes very little energy to just guide something slightly, give it some sideways motion so that it, by the time it would have hit Earth, it actually misses us completely. And we've got... Workshops with have engineers and astrophysicists and orbital dynamicists working on that very problem right now, but it's not that much money, and you want to know you want to know what it, which asteroid would pose that risk right now, our inventory of earth-crossing asteroids is woefully incomplete. There could be thousands we have yet to discover that are headed our way. Not all are large. the small ones actually hit more frequently. those are the ones we know the least about. So it's a, just an appeal to put a, throw a couple of dollars that way. It's insurance companies know this. It's the what is it worth to buy insurance for a very rare but high consequence event?
0: Now you've been on a couple of presidential commissions looking at what we should do in space. So what do you say? What in, from your perspective, what will be the ideal move for the for the United States for the this
1: planet to take in terms of space exploration? You have a couple hours for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, I'll try to make that brief, but. Uh, a couple of things. First, there aren't many agencies, government agencies, that stimulate dreams the way NASA stimulates dreams. In fact, I would say no other agency stimulates dreams at all. And NASA's the only one that does it, and they do it like it's nobody's business. Those dreams are to look up and imagine yourself among the stars, to look up and answer questions that you might have harbored all your life about is there life in the universe, is there... What is it like to walk around on the surface of Mars? What's it like on the rings of Saturn? NASA is the agency to do that. And I know there are problems in the world. I know but there were problems in the world in the 1960s. We were fighting the Vietnam War, a Cold War. There was the height of the Civil Rights Movement. But the Apollo Project, when you poll people as one of the greatest achievements, not simply of Americans, but of human beings at all, the Apollo missions to the moon are at the top of that list. We look upon that era as a time when dreams were realized. And that's what gives you energy to keep living, to try to improve life. That That's what you, that's food for happy thoughts in this desert of unhappy, this desert of, of tragedy and, and, and problems that we face in the world in the Middle East and the terrorism uh, threats and the like. Occasionally, I need to pause and look up and look up. Literally and philosophically, and our future in space does that for me.
0: Neil deGrasse Tyson is the Frederick P. Rose director of the Hayden Planetarium and author of The Sky Is Not the Limit Adventures of an Urban Astrophysicist. Thank you so much for taking this time with me today.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Just ahead, atomic waste and the presidential election. How the fight over Yucca Mountain could tip the balance in the swing state of Nevada. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu.
3: Australian scientists are taking a new approach to combating global warming, reducing greenhouse gas emissions one belch at a time. If it all sounds like a bunch of hot air, well, it is. Sheep and cattle are plentiful in Australia, and they expel large amounts of methane, a powerful greenhouse gas, as part of their natural digestive processes. Such natural gaseous effusions account for one-fifth of the global output of methane. Methane is second only to carbon dioxide in its contribution to global warming. But scientists at Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization have taken a big step toward curbing the environmental damage caused by these farm animals. The Australians have developed a vaccine against three species of microbes that produce methane in sheep stomachs. A recent test of the vaccine shows some promise. Sheep that received two injections in a 13-hour period emitted 8 percent less methane than the control group. The scientists note that their vaccine is only a prototype, but they're working to develop a formula against more of the microbes, ultimately reducing livestock methane emission even further. And that's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm
2: Jennifer Chu.
0: And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth.
2: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Ford, presenting the Escape Hybrid, whose full hybrid technology allows it to run on gas or electric power. Full hybrid technology details at fordvehicles.com. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at WKKF.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you've been paying any attention at all to the presidential race, you know the outcome is likely to depend upon a few key swing states, where votes are expected to be close and the candidates are running neck and neck. In one of those states, there's an environmental issue that's at center stage. That's Nevada, and the issue is Yucca Mountain, a highly controversial project intended to hold the country's atomic waste for thousands of years. President Bush signed the bill approving the project, but Nevada officials are fighting it in court and most Nevadans strongly oppose bringing the country's nuclear waste to their state. Senator Kerry tells Nevada voters if elected he would stop Yucca Mountain. From Las Vegas, Living on Earth, Jeff Young has our report.
4: Well, this is Las Vegas, so let's go ahead and get the cliché gambling reference out of the way, okay? Who's the smart money bet in the race for Nevada's five electoral votes?
5: It's a horse race. I wouldn't bet a dime either way.
4: That's Ted Jellin, political science professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Like most pollsters, Jellin sees Nevada as a toss-up, which is not what he expected. He thought President Bush would be winning Nevada by an 8-10 to 10 point spread, except for one thing.
5: The main thing, I think, is the Yucca Mountain, Yucca Mountain issue. Yucca Mountain gives the Democrats um, uh, a very strong issue you know, on which they can set the agenda.
4: On the campaign trail, John Kerry bashes President Bush. In Nevada, he also bashes Yucca Mountain, as in this interview with Las Vegas public radio station KNPR.
6: I happen to be against Yucca Mountain, and I'm against that storage mechanism. There are other ways of storing and other security Means of without dumping
0: them onto unwilling partners.
4: Kerry mentions the safety concerns raised by citizens groups as they fight the Yucca Project in court, that nuclear waste containers could corrode if water seeps into Yucca Mountains' tunnels, that the area is prone to earthquakes, and that moving radioactive waste to the site invites accidents or attacks. Kerry calls instead for an ambitious scientific effort to find new ways to deal with the waste.
6: What we really have to do is... Begin a kind of Manhattan project on the disposal of nuclear waste. We have barely applied ourselves, I think, scientifically to the task. Uh, instead of being so dependent on storage, we ought to be more dependent on destruction.
4: Jellin says the Yucca issue alone keeps Kerry competitive in Nevada.
5: It's hard to think of anyone who is for Yucca Mountain in in Nevada. The Bush administration has a lot to answer for to the citizens in Nevada, and has not done so effectively.
4: Four years ago, candidate Bush told Nevadans he would let science guide his decisions on Yucca Mountain. Here's how Bush explained it at a campaign rally this summer in Las Vegas. When I
6: campaigned here in this state, I said I would make a decision based upon science, not politics. I said I would listen to the scientists, those involved, with determining whether or not this project could move forward in a safe manner. And that's exactly what I did. I listened to, I listened to, the, I listened to the people... Who know the facts and know the science and made a decision.
4: That got cheers from a carefully screened partisan crowd, but not from Yucca's opponents. Absolutely he lied to us. Um,
3: And I say that every chance I get.
4: Peggy Mays Johnson directs the group Citizen Alert, which is approaching its 30th year of activism on nuclear waste issues. Johnson says Bush did not fulfill his pledge when Congress sent him the bill approving the Yucca site.
3: When he signed it, there were over 293 unanswered scientific questions. Now, from where I'm sitting, that is not sound science.
4: Victory 2004, carry for president. At the Democratic headquarters, campaign director Sean Smith says Yucca Mountain has become a touchstone for other concerns about President Bush.
6: It's as much about this this issue that George Bush cannot be trusted uh, as it is um, about Yucca Mountain. And we've seen the anger um, about that decision uh, for a long
4: time. Across town at the Republican headquarters, party director Chris Carr is in a ticklish spot. He supports Bush, but opposes Yucca Mountain. We. Here in Nevada, I mean, we don't we don't think that it was sound science. Um, however, um, I think it's 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 a it's a, a big stretch. I think it's absurd that they say that that he himself was not honest about it. Uh, the president obviously uh, depended on his advisors at Department of Energy, and you know his advisors at Department of Energy, if they went and, and, and gave him uh, you know wow. the, the information that it was uh, sound science, then I mean the president trusted his advisors. So which version of this do voters here buy? Do they feel misled by Bush? Do they believe Kerry when he says he'd stop Yucca Mountain? For some answers, I went to watch some high school football. It's Friday night, and the Chaparral Cowboys host the Las Vegas Wildcats. This is no scientific sample, but a few random conversations with folks here reflect pretty closely what polls show. Recent polling says about a third of Nevadans are like Isa Rivers.
2: The reason that I'm voting for Kerry is because of that issue. And if there's an accident, heaven forbid, you know, there's going to be spilling and fallout and there's going to be all kinds of problems. I just can see so many things happening because of it. I'm just against it. I'm opposed and I'll vote against it until I die. <laughs>
4: The poll shows 67% of Nevadans oppose Yucca Mountain, but about half say it will make no difference in how they vote in the presidential race. Why is that? Well, listen to what Bruce Scott thinks of Kerry's pledge. It's a political football. Whatever they feel that you want to hear, they're going to say. I don't believe he's going to stop it. I don't believe he's got the power to stop it. It hasn't been stopped yet. They're still digging a hole. The hole's still there.
2: You might as well fill it in and use it. And once again to
1: number
4: two, Brandon- Maybe it was just because the home team was getting shut out, but there was an air of defeatism about the Yucca Project. Many say they think Yucca cannot be stopped. That's the message the Yucca Project's proponents want Nevadans to hear. Robert List was the state's Republican governor in the early 80s. Now he's a consultant for the nuclear industry on Yucca Mountain.
6: If you ask the average Nevadan, uh, do you want the project here, if you have your choice, the, uh, the majority certainly would say, no, we don't want it here. At the same time, they say, but we think it's going to happen, and we believe that we ought to begin to negotiate for benefits.
4: List says a project estimated at $60 billion will bring jobs and tax revenue to the state. Activists fighting Yucca say Kerry's campaign here has breathed new life into the opposition. But a decisive vote against Kerry could be viewed as a sort of referendum for it, as President Bill Clinton warned Nevada Democrats at a fundraising event in June.
6: I'm telling you, you need to go out and tell the people of Nevada, if you vote one more time for this administration, they will think you are voting to green like this.
4: The nuclear power industry has a lot riding on this vote. The industry's lobbying group, the Nuclear Energy Institute, has spent tens of millions in lobbying and campaign contributions to win congressional support for Yucca. NEI Vice President Angie Howard is disappointed with Kerry's stance.
2: Well, we're concerned that uh, Senator Kerry
4: has taken that position. Uh, There has been over 20 years of very solid science gone into the development of Yucca Mountain as a possible candidate site for the repository. And Yucca Mountain is important for a continuation of the development of nuclear energy as we go forward for our nation's
2: electricity supply.
4: Back at his campus office, Professor Ted Jellin sees a great irony in all of this. The one state where an environmental issue appears to be making a real difference in the presidential race is a state that largely does not much care about environmental issues.
5: Well, the state bird is the construction crane. <laughs> this is not a place where um, the environment in Nevada is to be conquered, not protected.
4: Jellin says opposition to Yucca Mountain is generally not viewed as a fight for the environment, but as one against big government.
5: This was a, uh, something imposed from outside the state. And the local Democrats are doing very well. They're not posing it as a, so much as an environmental issue, as a state's rights issue. Okay, Nevadans will decide to what use the land of Nevada is put. Okay, not bureaucrats in Washington. And uh, so that anti-government sentiment that you get in this part of the world can cut both ways.
4: We'll see how deeply it cuts come November 2nd. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Las Vegas. Whether
0: or not one believes Ralph Nader tipped the last presidential election to George Bush, this year Kerry campaign officials say privately that if Mr. Nader polls just one or two points, it could make a crucial difference in the swing states. Many of Mr. Nader's supporters from last time have dropped away, some because he no longer has the backing of the Green Party and others who fear a spoiler effect, but not Sam Hitt. A former Green Party candidate for New Mexico's land commissioner and a longtime anti-logging and water rights activist, Mr. Hitt is standing by his man and he joins us by phone from Santa Fe. Hello, sir. Hello. Now, I'm sure your friends and, and, and folks you've worked with in politics are asking you this. Uh, we have a winner-take-all system when you run for president of the United States, the electoral vote system and such, and that in a tight state, which is yours, New Mexico, votes for Ralph Nader could, at the end of the day, end up uh, supporting uh, George Bush. So what do well, you say to these folks?
6: Uh, yeah, and so that's a real strong incentive, it would seem to me, for the Democrats, for John Kerry, to earn my vote. Uh, to get out there and make the environment an issue. Uh, He has not done that. Um, He is uh, talking with the coal industry, making concessions and compromises. He has not addressed the public land issues, uh, as far as I can tell, in the campaign at all. Uh, Wait wait a
0: second. He doesn't want to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge.
6: Well, that's true, and I appreciate his long history there, and that's great. Uh, Unfortunately, he's told the oil and gas people uh, that he's going to allow them to drill elsewhere in the lower 48. And we have several very valuable and ecologically important areas here in New Mexico, which would be opened up to oil and gas exploitation. And if he promises, if he goes through with his promises. So I, you know, I think that's not something that's going to earn my vote.
0: But many environmental activists would make the charge that uh, President Bush has a very poor environmental record.
6: Well, Uh, I think there's no doubt there that he does have an extremely poor environmental record. And Um, I I, I just have to part company with my fellow uh, environmental activists and conservationists. Uh, We we just don't quite see eye-to-eye on what the environmental movement is. I have believed for decades that it's a social change movement, uh, very much like the abolition of slavery and the suffrage of women and the populist movement in the 1890s. And, you know, those were movements that started from the outside. They didn't rely on lobbying in in Washington, D.C., to... Achieve social change, and I I just believe that uh, if we're going to have the kind of fundamental uh, social change, it's going to come from the outside. That's that's our history, uh, that's the way our system is set up, and that's what Ralph Nader represents.
0: So I'm sure your your friends argue with you. Um, look, how much are you willing to risk having Bush in office for another four years to send the message of social change?
6: Well, yeah, these these are all serious considerations, and I've I've Weighed them very carefully, and I, I'm uh, tremendously enthused and excited by all the voices uh, that have risen up—the uh, Michael Moores and the Amy Goodmans and the Tom Hartmans and many, many others—that uh, that, that uh, you know we we just have this flowering of uh, progressive political thought in America today, and, and it, it's it's I I think we're really educating the next generation in that uh, would be a silver lining to the cloud, if you will, if, if Bush is reelected, that that movement will not lose its steam, that, that will gather steam.
0: Um, Sam, I'm wondering, you have kids?
6: Yes, yes, I do have three children now. Yeah.
0: And um, how politically active are they?
6: Well, uh, my two boys in their 20s are uh, increasingly active. Uh, they, were, they were both uh, inspired by the Nader campaign in 2000. Uh, I think they both voted for the first time then.
0: And which way do you think they're going this year?
6: Well, that's a good question. We've had a lot of a lot of uh, heated exchanges, and, uh, you know, I think they're weighing their options. Uh, uh, they're probably leaning toward a Kerry vote, but, uh, you know, it's hard to tell at this point. Um, it's uh, you Sa- know, these, Sam, these, wait a
0: second. Sam, you've given them their political education in your household, and they're going to vote for Kerry? Why do you suppose they're going to do that?
6: Well, I I hope I've given them the sense that, that we need to keep our eye on the prize and work for fundamental social change. Uh, you know, there's a tremendous uh, a pull from fear, and they're susceptible of, of that as everyone else, including you know, including myself. So, I think it takes it takes a very principled and uh, a very determined attitude here to do what's right even if on the surface and in the short term it appears to be wrong.
0: Okay. It's November 3rd, 2004, right. the day after the election. Um, President Bush has won reelection with the electoral vote margin that came from New Mexico <laughs> by a handful of votes, in fact, the margin attributable to those folks who voted for Ralph Nader. How do you feel?
6: Well, I guess I would feel like uh William Lloyd Garrison did when he burned the Constitution, a copy of the Constitution, uh b- back in the eighteen thirties, uh, to protest uh slavery which was written into the Constitution, you know. Uh you know, many of his supporters uh abandoned him. He th- they they thought he was off his rocker. Well of course he was right, you know. A slave isn't worth three fifths of a person and that's what the constitution said. You know, and it was it was decades before he was proven right. So, you know, it's, it's, again, there has to be a few people in America. There, there has to be a Ralph Nader that's, that's outside the system to work for long-term social change, which often takes more than just one lifetime, but is the only significant thing that's going to make this a more livable planet.
0: Sam Hitt is a founder of the Wild Watershed Organization in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and a former candidate for state land commissioner on the Green Party ticket. Thanks for taking this time with me today.
6: You bet. My pleasure.
0: You can hear our program anytime on our website. The address is livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. You could reach us at comments at loe.org. Once again, comments at loe.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800 218 9988. That's 800 218 9988. CDs, tapes, and transcripts are $15. This week on Living on Earth, marine parks attract millions of visitors each year to see shows with sea stars like Shamu the killer whale. But some criticize how these animals are captured and then how they are cared for in these marine parks.
2: Animals died from too much chlorine in their tank, from jumping into a, an empty pool during a cleaning, marine mammals swallowing keychains, uh, sunglasses, metal, things that people toss into the tank's, not thinking twice as the dolphin eats it and dies.
0: It's the flip side of Flipper next week on Living on Earth. And remember, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We take you now to a place where Earth and space meet to make beautiful music. This is the sound of lightning striking across the Earth's magnetic field. Robert Halliwell recorded these atmospheric whistlers for the CD Pulse of the Planet, produced by Jim Metzner. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Christopher Bolick, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, and Susan Shepard, with help from Carl Lindemann, James Kerwood, and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Jenny Cecil Moore, Jen Goodman, and Steve Gregory. We had help from member station KNPR, Nevada Public Radio. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our technical director is Paul Wabrett. Allison Dean composed our themes. Al Avery runs our website. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Environmental sound art. Courtesy of Earthier. I'm Steve Perwin. Thanks for listening.
2: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and more. Women of Inspiration speak at the Stonyfield Strong Women programs taking place in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the Town Creek Foundation.
4: This is NPR, National Public Radio.